You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, church. Thanks again for joining us. I'm really excited to continue our study of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, you'll be wanting to turn to chapter 2. We'll start at verse 19. Uh, But first, you know, I I was studying this week, and a common phrase came to my mind. It's the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, You've heard that. You've probably said it at times in your life. You know, and it's this phrase that reminds us that so often when we do the right thing and we decide to make a good decision, we expect good things to follow. And you've, again, you've experienced this. Maybe you've decided to go to church and after you haven't been in a while. Maybe you've decided to be the bigger person and not retaliate. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you've decided to go on a diet and you make these decisions and you expect, okay, now good things are going to start happening. But so often we're disappointed, aren't we? That's just not how life works. So many times we make a good decision and things don't get better, they get worse. And so this phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, it reminds us that this happens not just a few times, it actually happens quite often in real life. And that kind of describes our story today. It's a story of a good deed. Uh, uh, God's going to, Mordecai is going to save the life of the king. What what better deed is there than that? But there's going to be not reward, there's going to be punishment, genocide, in fact. You ever wonder in the middle of those times, when it seems like no good deed goes unpunished, you ever wonder, where, where is God in all this? Where is God while this is going on? And Is he going to step in? Is he going to bring good about somehow? Is he going to stop this evil from happening? Does he see what's happening? Does he care about what's happening? I think these are the very questions that this story is, going to, is asking, and we're going to learn about today as we read. So let's do that. Let's open our Bibles to Esther 2. Uh, we'll start in verse 19, and as the story, as we uh, hop back into it, we find Mordecai at the king's gate. And it's important to understand he's not just loitering, loitering around, he's not just hanging out. He probably has some sort of official position uh, that he has occupied. And so these, usually these men who, uh, it was a common phrase, sat at the gate, they were frequently elders, they were respected citizens, and they would sit at the gate and settle disputes. And so if two citizens had a dispute, they'd bring it to the gate, bring it to one of these respected citizens, and they would try to settle it. So there uh, Mordecai is in verse 21, doing the best job he knows how. And it reminded me of the intro to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. There he is, chilling out, maxing, relaxing on cool, when all of a sudden a couple of guys who are up to no good, they start making trouble in Mordecai's neighborhood. And these two guys decide they want to assassinate the king. It's not any two guys. We're told that they guarded the king's threshold. That probably means they guarded his home, maybe his apartment, his, uh, his uh, specific part of the palace, or maybe even his bedroom. So they were very close to the king, and we don't know why, but they decided they wanted to assassinate him. And with that, let's pick it up. We're going to read verse 22 and 23 and see how Mordecai responded. The text says, and this came, that's this assassination plot, came to the knowledge of Mordecai and told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Esther goes and reveals this plot to the king and tells the king, hey, Mordecai is the one that just saved your bacon. He's the one that uncovered this plot. And then it's recorded, it says in the book of the Chronicles, that's the official history. In the official history book, it's recorded that Mordecai saved the king's life. Now, if you and I were writing the story, this is the part where we would say, see, God's in control. He's been in control this whole time. Think of all the things he's He's had to organize to set Mordecai up to find favor with the king. He's made Esther the queen. He's put Mordecai at the gate to overhear the plot almost by chance. And so surely now, surely now it's time for Mordecai to get promoted. Maybe there's going to be a parade. But now he's going to find favor with the king, and so all the Jews will be saved. Well, then we get to the beginning of chapter 3, and this is where we get our plot twist. And it's maybe not what we expected. Uh, chapter 3 begins with what Chuck Swindoll calls the evil interlude that disrupts everything. It's where we, uh, we see a guy named Haman. Now, Haman is, honestly, he's one of the most hated people in all of Jewish history. In fact, to this day, uh, there's a feast called the Feast of Purim that celebrates just these events we're about to read. And Haman is so despised, he's so reviled, so hated that during this feast, all the kids, they'll get pots and pans and maybe wooden spoons and mallets, and every time the name of Haman is spoken, they bang the pots and they hiss. They hiss at the mention of his name. This is how hated he is. And we're about to find out why. In verse 1, we're, we're told that he, is, he becomes the highest official, second only to the king. So he's been promoted, not Mordecai. We find out that he's an Agagite. Now, that doesn't mean he went from Texas. He's from Texas A&M. That means he's a descendant from King Agag. King Agag was an Amalite king. And the Amalekites, y'all, these are the ancient enemies of the Jews. They have been warring against the Jews since the very time they came out of Egypt. And there's one very notorious incident from 1 Samuel 15. It's when God gave the Jews victory over the Amalekites, and he told Saul to destroy them all. But Saul didn't do it. He spared King Agag. He spared a lot of the, the best livestock. He spared a few others. And because of that, God judged Saul. He, he said that he regretted making Saul king, and he removed the kingdom from Saul. And so then Samuel, the prophet, he steps in, and he kills King Agag. And so you can imagine, uh, and I'm sure you can see why, these two groups of people hated each other. It is an ancient feud. It's worse than the Hatfields and McCoys, worse than even uh, UT and A&M. Haman is a generational enemy of the Jews from birth, and he's the one that's just been promoted to the place of ultimate power in the kingdom. So verse 2, I'll... All the servants, you know, they're supposed to bow down. They're supposed to pay homage to Haman. And you can imagine how Mordecai feels about this. No way, Jose. No way am I bowing down to this descendant of Agag, to this Amalekite. And so, of course, he won't do it. Uh, most likely from the text, we don't know for sure, but most commentators agree, his refusal to bow and pay homage is, 
is more about pride than it is about faith. See, he wasn't being asked to worship Haman. Uh, this isn't a scenario where he's saying, no, I only worship and bow to God alone. No, this is just a matter of honor and respect. And there's plenty of examples throughout Scripture of Jews honoring and paying homage to their leaders. Most likely he's refusing because no self-respecting Israelite is going to bow before a descendant of the Amalekites. And so verse 3 and 4, this happens for a a good period of time. It keeps happening. uh, Mordecai keeps refusing. And so eventually, obviously, people notice. And they come to him and they ask him, hey, you better pay honor to this guy. Why won't you do it? And he explains to them, well, it's because I'm a Jew. And this is the first time that he's outing himself as a Jew. And he's doing it to explain, no, no, my people and his people are enemies, so there's no way I'm going to bow to him. And so in verse 5, we get Haman's reaction. And uh, let's read. Let's read verse 5 and 6 together. He says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Not exactly a proportional response, is it? Haman decided his honor had been so offended, the only appropriate response was total genocide of the Jewish people. This is the nuclear option. This is evil. And it's not exactly what we expected at the end of chapter 2, was it? Mordecai sings, saves the king's life, and in return we get total destruction of the Jewish people. What's the text trying to tell us here? Well, I think the first thing this text is trying to tell us is don't be surprised by pain. Don't be surprised by pain. You know, it's been my experience that few things surprise Christians today more than suffering, especially suffering for doing good. I mean, imagine if you were... Mordecai, you just saved the king's life, and now your mortal enemy is going to kill your whole people. I can't tell you how big of a conniption fit I would be throwing. This is not fair. God, where are you? Why is this happening? How can you let this happen? We do. We're surprised by pain. We're surprised by especially suffering that we deem to be unfair. And i got to be honest, I don't know where we get that expectation. It's certainly not from Scripture. You know, Jesus, he promised several times that we would experience suffering. In John 16, 33, he promised, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. How's that for a promise from God? You want, you want to claim the promises from God? There's a promise you can claim. In this world, you're going to have trouble. A little earlier in John 15, he tells his disciples, you know what? The, this world is going to hate you. It is going to persecute you when you follow me. That's going to happen. And here's why. Here's why that's going to happen. Because they hate and they persecute me. This world is against my kingdom and my purposes. And so when you join my kingdom, it's going to hate you and persecute you as well. That's a promise. And even earlier in John 10, he tells us about our enemy. He says, hey, this enemy, listen, he's not there just to make you a little uncomfortable. He's not there just to put a few speed bumps along your way. That Thief, that enemy is there to steal, kill, and destroy you. His purpose 
is destruction. Jesus is clear about that. Now, it's, it's one thing that I know, I understand, it's one thing to, to know these verses. It's a whole other thing to be living smack dab in the reality of suffering and being persecuted and, and experiencing the enemy's attempts to steal, kill, and destroy you. And think about where we are in the story right now. In this story, you know, it's not clear if God's going to step in or not, or if this evil is going to be allowed to continue. You know what? Maybe that's right where you are, in whatever pain or suffering you're experiencing. It's not clear how long God's going to let this go on. If that's you, I want to share something with you. You know, each of these verses from John where Jesus promises trouble, you know what? He also promises something greater than trouble. In John 16, he says, yeah, you're going to experience trouble, but you know what? I've given you a peace greater than any trouble that you experience. And he tells you, I've overcome the world, so all these forces out there that are against me and against you, they will not win in the end. I have overcome them. In John 15, he says, yes, it's true. The world's going to hate you and persecute you, but I've chosen you. And that's where he promises the Holy Spirit. He says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've put that Holy Spirit inside of you for these times. John 10.10, it says this uh, enemy comes to kill and destroy. He says, but I have given you life. I've given you an eternal life that no enemy can take away. So men and women, don't be surprised by pain. It's going to come. But in the midst of it, put your faith in the greater promises of God. These promises are true, even if things don't get immediately better. So let's keep going in our story. Let's see if God's going to intervene and act, or if this plot is going to keep going. We'll pick it up in verse 7. So Haman's uh, phase one of his plan is we have to set a date, set a date for this genocide. And so what he does is he casts per. This is kind of like casting lots. Uh, it's considered to be kind of a game of chance. We don't know exactly how it works. But you could picture it like rolling dice. And so we're going to pick every day in the calendar, and we're going to roll dice, and it's almost like saying when snake eyes comes up, that's the day. That's the day all the Jews are going to be destroyed. You know, I think the text is kind of asking us a question here. It's asking us, wait a minute, is there a plan? Is God really in control? Or is this all just up to chance? When it's your day, it's your day. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, so they cast the purr, they pick the date, and then in verse 8, next he has to convince the king to move forward with the plot. So let's read verse 8 together. He says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's prophets profit to tolerate them. So you notice here he appeals to the king's pride and to his arrogance. He says, king, they're a threat to you. They won't obey your laws. And you know what? They're different. They're not like you and I. They're different from us. And he says, you know what? It doesn't profit you. King, what, what's in it for you to keep these people around? So you can see the evil and the deception here from Haman. Then in verse 9, he appeals to the king's greed. He bribes the king. He offers to pay him 10,000 talents of silver and this was to pay for the men to carry out the genocide. Now, here's what you need to understand. This is an absurd amount of money. They estimate uh, this would have been approximately 
375 tons of silver. It probably represented about two-thirds of the annual income of the entire Persian empire. Haman does not have this kind of change laying around. So where is he going to get it? Well, probably he's planning on getting, getting it from confiscating the Jews' property once he has murdered them. And so he's appealing to the king's greed, and he's saying, listen, we can take all this money from them, and we can just give it to you, king. So in verse 10, the king says, okay. And he gives Haman a signet ring, which is like an official signature. It would have been like, it would have been a ring with a, uh, an official emblem on it that we would have pressed down into some soft clay. And when he did that, it was literally the king's way of, of literally stamping his approval on this plot, on this death sentence for all Jews. And then in verse 11, he goes further and he, he refuses the bribe. And he tells him, you know, I don't need the money. Just go and do whatever you want, Haman. At this point, you may stop and say, wait a minute. You just said that God is, he has promises greater than evil. But it looks like this plan is moving forward and God is doing nothing. It's going forward full steam ahead. But here's another thing that I think we need to learn from the text today, and it's this. Don't mistake God's silence for his absence. Don't mistake God's silence for his absence. Man, God sure seems silent right now, doesn't he? But I'll go and tell you by the end, by the end of the story, it's going to be perfectly clear that nothing can stop God from working for his glory and the good of his people. Maybe you can't see that clearly now, but you know what? There's evidence of it. There's small traces of it here. Maybe Maybe you missed them. You know, they rolled, they rolled the dice, they cast the pur to see when the day of the genocide would be. And it was 11 months. 11 months from the time the edict was declared to the time it was actually enacted. That's a lot of time for God to work and to move. Also, you remember when Mordecai uncovered the assassination plot is recorded in that book of history. That's going to come back in chapter 6. The king is going to go read that official history once again, and it is going to change everything. You know, it's hard to see that in the moment when the king puts his stamp of approval on genocide. In the same way, it's, it's hard to see that the day you get the bad news you've been dreading, or when you're having to say goodbye to a loved one, but when you're in the middle of a depression, it is hard to see how God is working. In those moments, men and women, remember that just because God is silent for the moment does not mean that he is absent. You know, this is why I think one of the greatest gifts God gives his people are other people who have been following God just a little bit longer than we have. And they've gone a little farther down that journey, down that road, than we have. You know, our church is full of stories of people who have experienced uh, very real pain and very real difficulty, sometimes for long periods of time. And in the moment, in the middle of it, you know, they would say they didn't understand and they even questioned God. But then some time went by. And after some time, enough time, they were able to look and they were able to see exactly what God was doing, maybe even after decades. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who've traveled this journey say things like, you know what, I would never want to do it again. In fact, I would never wish that on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it now that I see what God was doing. 
now. That sounds crazy, and it is crazy, unless, unless, the only way that statement can be true is if it's the end is so good it makes the whole journey worth it. Remember, even in times of your waiting, God is working. And just because he's silent right now doesn't mean he is absent. We're just in the middle of the journey. We haven't made it to the end yet. So let's keep going down this journey in verse 12. Because for now, it seems like Haman is in total control, and he's calling the shots. Notice how thorough they are with this edict. They, in verse 12, it says, they translated into the languages of all 127 provinces. They want to make sure there's nowhere to hide. There's no uh, backwoods corner of this kingdom that uh, the Jews can go and hide from. Verse 13 and 14, we get this. It's the official edict and the official wording, and it's this language is complete and comprehensive legal authority. It doesn't just simply say, hey, we're going to go kill the Jews. It says we're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate them. It's this kind of legal repetition that you see in even modern-day contracts that they kind of find as many synonyms for the same thing, and it's to make sure there are no loopholes. And so what Haman is doing here is commanding all the people uh, to completely annihilate every Jew and making sure there's nowhere to hide and there's no loopholes. What's worse, he says, after they kill their victims, everyone in the kingdom is free to just back their truck up to the Jews' former home and just load it up with whatever they want, and loot their belongings. This is pure evil. But it ends in a fascinating way, chapter 3 does. And I want us to read verse 15 together. It's the last verse of the chapter. It says this, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the curtains fall with really two scenes going on at the same time. Ahasuerus, Haman, they're essentially having a beer together. They're toasting each other, patting each other on the back. They're congratulating, congratulating each other. They are completely at ease. They are completely confident. As far as they're concerned, they have won. Susa, on the other hand, this high Jewish population is in total shock and confusion over this terrible destiny that's just been issued. You know what's interesting, though? The day that this uh, edict went out, the day that the destiny went out, it was the eve of the Passover. The Jews were getting ready to celebrate Passover. They were getting ready to celebrate a time in the past when a sentence of death hung over them, and they could not save themselves. They needed God to intervene and save them from death. They needed God to deliver them. And so the day before they get ready to celebrate, here comes another death sentence. And once again, they find themselves in need of God to deliver them. Here's what I think the text is telling us at the close of chapter 3. Don't forget you need a Savior. Don't forget your own need for a Savior. The Jews clearly need a Savior. That's clear here. But what about Haman and the king? You know what? They need a savior as well. They just don't know it. 
this real irony here. Remember, Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot in his own home from his own servant. And that's how he is eventually going to die. In 465 BC, he is assassinated by one of his own servants in his own home. He's not as secure as he thought he was. What about you? Do you need a Savior? Do you know it? You know, we, I know we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people, but I think if what the Bible says about us is true, we're much more like Ahasuerus and Haman than maybe we like to admit. The truth is often we're pretty at ease, even self-congratulatory, but so blind to our own sin and so blind to our own need for a Savior. We, we do, we like to all kind of keep score, and, and when we do, we compare ourselves to other people, and, and we tend to think we're actually we're pretty good. The problem is, y'all, we are really bad accountants, and we forget a lot of things. We forget, you know, far worse than Mordecai's refusal to honor Haman is our refusal to honor our Lord God. We don't give him the glory and the honor that he is due. Instead, we, we choose to live for our own glory. I would say far worse than the way this king protected his throne against any threats is the way we build our own little personal kingdoms and we put ourselves on the throne and we protect that at all cost instead of putting Jesus Christ on the throne. And you know what? Far worse than Haman's violence against the innocent is our violence against God himself. Think about it. Our eternal creator, God left his throne in heaven, and he came to earth, and we put him under a death sentence. There's one big difference, though. You know, spoiler alert, in the end, God's going to save the Jews from Haman. You know what God did not do? God did not save his son from us. That death sentence was not stayed. God is going to allow his son have nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He's going to allow Jesus Christ to hang on a cross until he dies. Why on earth, why would God do that? Well, it's because the people of Susa, the Jews, Haman, the king, you and me, we're really not all that different. Each and every one of us, all of us, since the Garden of Eden, because of our sin, we've been under a death sentence. And we can't save ourselves from it. We can't deliver ourselves. We need God to deliver us. And just like that Passover lamb that they were getting ready to celebrate, just like that Passover lamb, Christ's death purchases our life. The way the the New Testament puts it is, anyone who believes in him does not perish, but has eternal life because of his death. So, do you know that you need a Savior today? If you do, I've got great news. One has been provided for you. One has died so that you might have life. Men and women, this is the end that makes the whole journey worth it. This is how God is working through every pain and every trial that comes our way. He is giving us Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.